True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and this is your Spotlight Minisode, in which we discuss recent true crime events that are in the media at the moment. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters, a huge thank you goes out to Katie Wyatt, Candice, Johan Boerta, Helga, Moriah Yomi Aludun, and Cara Theat for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. You can also support the show and get a 10% discount on your health and beauty needs by purchasing from King Online and using the discount code TCSA10 at checkout. You can also help to support me as an individual creator by checking out the companion podcast I created with Showmax for the Devil's Dorp documentary or by purchasing the Krugersdorp Cult Killings audiobook by Jana Marx which I narrated, on Audible, Google Play Books, or Apple Books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keep the show growing and improving. The cases I'm going to be covering today are all ones that I've discussed on the podcast in minisodes before. I'm taking a look at them again today because there have been updates in these cases. The first case I wanted to discuss is the rather well-known and highly publicised death of Susan Rhoda. Susan was found dead with the cord of a hair straightener wrapped around her neck in the bathroom of a hotel room at Spear Wine Estate in 2016. She'd been at the Wine Estate for a conference with her husband, Jason. Also present at the conference was a real estate agent that Jason had been having an extramarital affair with. The woman's presence would lead to heated altercations between the Rhoda couple and although Jason was present in the room when Susan died, he would claim that she had committed suicide by wrapping the electrical cord around her neck and hanging herself from the coat hook on the back of the bathroom door. A court, though, found Jason guilty of the premeditated murder of his wife and sentenced him to 20 years in prison. Just before the pandemic hit the world in 2020, Jason Roder was granted leave to appeal. And he was granted bail while that appeal awaited its turn in court. In August this year, the appeal hearing finally proceeded, 
and it's taken quite an interesting turn. The Supreme Court of Appeals has withheld its judgment at this point, but one judge has expressed concerns that the nature of the murder may have been misunderstood by the initial presiding judge. Although Rhoda's defence continues to claim he had played no role in his wife's death, physical evidence presented by the state points to manual strangulation as the method of death, rather than death by hanging. Injuries on Susan's body seem to point to a physical altercation in the hours before her death. Jason explained this by saying that she tripped over a low wall the previous day. The difficulty in believing that Susan took her own life comes from the evidence that there was at least a cup of blood ingested by Susan during the time it took her to die. This seems to indicate that she'd been unconscious or otherwise incapacitated for a significant period prior to her death. Judge van der Maver of the Supreme Court of Appeals says that he is concerned that the murder was possibly not premeditated. He cites text messages between Susan and Jason in which Susan threatened violence against both Jason and his girlfriend. Van der Maver feels that the murder could be considered a crime of passion and as such may not warrant the full 20-year sentence that Rhoda was initially given. This appeal continues to play out in court, and I'll keep an eye on it for you. The next case I'd like to discuss is the murder of Raymond Papapaflu. I initially discussed this case in the spotlight minisode titled Killer Wives. 28-year-old Raymond was murdered in his bed on a game farm in Hroblesdal in October 2020. At the time, his wife, Simone, had claimed that intruders had broken in and shot her husband. She'd admitted to firing warning shots at the intruders. Raymond was declared dead when police found him riddled with five bullets. Doubts were almost immediately cast over this case, though, when police said that they could find no evidence of an intrusion into the home. Within three weeks, police made an arrest in this case. 23-year-old Patricia Smith was arrested and charged with Raymond's murder. It emerged that the woman was friends with both Raymond and Simone. For a long time, the case seemed to hang in mid-air. Raymond's family even approached carte blanche to feature the case as they feared that they would not see any justice. Social media was abuzz with claims that Simone Papapaflu was involved too, and everyone wondered if she would be arrested. Last week, quite out of the blue, we saw media reports that Simone had handed herself over to police after being advised that a warrant for her arrest had been issued. She appeared in court quite soon after, and has been charged with her husband's murder. It remains to be seen who the state will peg as the actual trigger person, but in her bail hearing, 
it did emerge that this was not the first time Simone allegedly attempted to end her husband's life. A NetFact24 article states that guests at a bra the Papapaflus attended in May 2020 witnessed a blue crystal-like substance on a toasted sandwich that was intended for Raymond. One woman mentioned that they had been toasting sandwiches on the bra when she noticed that Raymond's sandwich looked blue. She asked him what was wrong with his sandwich after he'd taken a few bites, and he opened it to find a blue substance. It is believed that the blue substance was a product called Phenale, which is used as a rodent poison. Raymond pushed the sandwich aside and did not eat any more of it. The few bites he did have, though, made him sick enough that he had to be hospitalised. Friends became concerned and asked Raymond to have the sandwich tested. He declined and continued to make excuses, saying that it was probably just an accident. In all fairness, Simone's lawyer told the media that she had not made the sandwiches that day and that there were 18 other people at the bra, and one other person did become ill, but not as seriously as Raymond. I would be interested to know if Patricia Smith was present at the bra that day. Simone Papapaflu has been charged with murder, attempted murder, conspiracy to commit murder, defeating the ends of justice, and possession of an unlicensed firearm and ammunition. I'll keep an eye on this trial as it progresses. Another bizarre case, which saw at least one of its stays in court recently, was the trial of Ramiz Patel. I first discussed the Patel case in Spotlight Minisode number 29, and it is a seriously strange case. Patel is accused of killing his wife, Fatima, in 2015. After her death, both his father and his mother were murdered in separate incidents, which were alleged to be robberies gone wrong. After his mother's murder, his brother Razine came forward to tell police that he believed his brother was responsible for their parents' deaths. He claimed that Ramiz had confessed to murdering his wife to his parents, and when they did not keep the information to themselves, Ramiz killed them or had them killed. The story would only get stranger, though, as the day before he was due to testify against his brother in court, Razine was shot in a hail of gunfire on his vehicle. He survived and fled the country for his life. While Ramiz's trial for his wife's murder is ongoing, it's been continuously delayed by evidence going missing, court clerks refusing to transcribe records despite the judge ordering them to do so, and many other strange occurrences. The judge recently stated that he, quote, smelled a rat, end quote, and was certain that some sort of corruption was at play, resulting in these delays. In the interim, Patel has stood trial for his mother's murder, 
that the state was forced to withdraw the charges when it couldn't locate its witnesses. The withdrawal of the charges, of course, leaves the door open for future prosecution, should the required witnesses present themselves. His trial for his wife's murder has been postponed to September. I have to say that this is one of the most bizarre stories I've ever encountered, because the trail of bodies behind Ramiz Patel doesn't seem to stop there. It's alleged that his second wife's father also died under strange circumstances when he was allegedly kidnapped, held for ransom, and then murdered by his captors. As I detailed in Miniso 29, the Patel family are well-known residents of Polokwane. When Ramiz's parents were alive, the family was well-off and owned and ran several businesses in town. Since the murder of Fatima, however, and the ensuing murders of so many members of the Patel family, as well as Ramiz's incarceration, and his brother having to flee for his life, these businesses have all but become defunct. Considering what happened to his own brother when he was set to testify, and all of the testimonies and statements that are magically disappearing, I cannot help but think that the witnesses in the trial for the murder of Patel's mother are afraid, and probably rightfully so. The unfortunate thing is, that if these people do not find the courage to come forward and tell their story, justice cannot be served. And Ramiz Patel, if he is guilty of these horrendous acts, may just get away scot-free. I'll follow up on this one for you as well and keep you updated. The next case I want to chat about today was also one that I discussed in my Spotlight Minisode number 29. In April this year, a domestic worker arrived at the home of 60-year-old Theo Kleinhans to find the man and two other occupants of the home deceased. A fourth female victim was fighting for her life and was admitted to ICU. It's alleged that the group of people had all been co-workers and worked at Kleinhans's property management business. They'd all attended a dinner at a restaurant on the Friday night and then gone back to Kleinhans's home for an after-party. Neighbours would allege that Kleinhans's upmarket Pretoria property was well known as a party house, and acquaintances claimed that it was also kitted out with CCTV cameras on the inside of the house. Regardless of the methods of private recreation undertaken by Kleinhans, or those who attended his parties, with three deceased victims and one barely clinging to life, an investigation was absolutely necessary. Details regarding the recovery of the surviving victim were minimal, except to say that she'd regained consciousness and that she would be the key to the investigation. Since then, it has emerged in the media that at least one person that died in the house was found to have overdosed on gamma-hydroxybutyrate, or GHB, 
the drug is commonly known as a date rape drug, but it is also used by clubgoers to elicit feelings of tranquility and euphoria. Side effects of the drug include loss of memory, which is one of the reasons it's often used to spike drinks prior to rape, as the victim will have little memory of the events. Extremely high levels of alcohol were also found in the blood of the victims. The question then became, was the drug taken willingly, or did these people have their drinks spiked for some reason? Ali de Kock of Specialised Security Services, a private investigation agency that was appointed by family members of the deceased shortly after their bodies were discovered, spoke to Jacaranda FM and said that the surviving victim had told them that no one else had been present at the house except her and the other three victims. She said that they had returned from the restaurant and the other three had started to drink whiskey. She had not consumed any of the whiskey. Acquaintances of Kleinhans have said that he and his guests would frequently experiment with GHB. Unfortunately, it is also highly likely that all participants willingly took the drug, and that it had come perhaps from a different supplier than they may have been used to, or that the drug was cut with something toxic, or even that it was a higher purity than they were accustomed to, and they ingested too much of it. Interestingly, Kali de Kock told Jacaranda that Kleinhans's mother and sister actually lived on the same property as him, but in a separate area. He had told them never to come over when he had guests. It also emerged during this interview that Chariska Kloppers, the 30-year-old mother of two who sadly passed away, had not intended to stay for the party. She had been waiting for 23-year-old Mario Pretorius to give her a lift home. The two females were found on the porch outside, and Theo and Mario appeared to have been walking upstairs when they'd both become unconscious, as their bodies were found on the stairs. De Kock also told Jacaranda that he had found the initial police handling of the scene wanting, as family members of the victims had allegedly taken photographs of the deceased and sent them to his private investigation firm. He doesn't indicate whether this was before or after police had arrived, though. It's entirely possible that family members of Kleinhans, who lived on the same property, were alerted by the domestic employee who discovered the bodies, and taken the photographs before the police arrived. I do find even that odd, but everyone is different, and we all react to trauma differently. Interestingly, in a study published in 2016, researchers from the University of Pretoria assessed fatalities from illicit drugs in the Pretoria area during the period from 2003 to 2012. Out of 22,566 autopsies conducted in the area during that period, 
only 385 reports included analyses for illicit drugs. Out of all 385, none came back positive for GHB. However, in an article published last year on the website of a rehabilitation centre called Twin Rivers, it's claimed that the use of GHB has increased significantly in the last decade. The article refers to the drug's use in what are called chemsex parties, which for the unenlightened in these matters, yes, that includes me, is basically a drug-fueled sex party. The article states, quote, There are many problems with using GHB, but the most concerning thing is that the distance between euphoria and overdose can be measured as a single milliliter of the substance. It may also be hard to find what a safe dose is. That's why so many people risk falling into a coma, particularly if they are drinking alcohol and taking the drug at the same time. A state of unconsciousness can occur quickly, which is common and experienced by most users. End quote. While we don't yet have all of the toxicology results available, it seems quite possible that these three unfortunate deaths may well have been as a result of experimentation gone wrong. It may well be shocking to many South Africans to see this sort of scenario unravel, but really, it's only come to light because this party went so very wrong. Illicit drug use is no longer just the vice of heroin addicts on the street corner. Many, many highly successful people use illicit drugs as recreational devices. And I'm sure for them it may seem a harmless and fun pastime to pair up with whatever else they may enjoy doing. But for Theo Kleinhunts and three of his employees... That nights of fun went horribly wrong. The final case I wanted to give an update on is that of the murder of Yolandi Bortas. I initially discussed Yolandi's case in Spotlight Minisode number 30. Yolandi went missing in April this year when she flew into OR Tambo Airport and got into an e-hailing taxi. She was then spotted once on the East Rand on CCTV, getting out of the taxi at a shopping centre, and then she was never seen alive again. Sadly, Yolandi's dismembered remains were found in the Vol River by a father and son who were fishing in Villiers. She was identified initially by a distinctive tattoo, and the identification was confirmed by DNA. At this point, Police are mum on any developments in Yolandi's case, but one rather mismatched piece of the puzzle was removed from play in the last few weeks. In the days after Yolandi's disappearance, and around the time of the discovery of her remains, a Kempton Park guesthouse owner made headlines when he discovered a blood-spattered room on his premises after a guest had checked out. At the time, the press and many on social media 
immediately felt the room had to be linked to Yolandi's case. Recently, police confirmed that swabs taken from that room do not match Yolandi Bortis's DNA, and the blood, in fact, belongs to an unknown male. Even after this was confirmed, I still saw people asking, but where's the body from the Kenton scene then? Well, there doesn't necessarily have to be a body. In fact, there probably isn't one. When people saw the amount of blood in the room, they immediately assumed that someone had to have been killed. But really, it's entirely possible for a human being to lose that amount of blood over a period of time and taking their body size into account and walk away. The scene, in fact, is not dissimilar to many attempted suicides where people have slit their wrists and then panicked and tried to stem the flow. It's also entirely possible that the injury was caused during an injectable drug use and the user in question hit a vein and stumbled around trying to stop the bleeding. I can say, that I am very grateful that this scene is not related to Yolandi's murder. Yes, it would have been a major piece of evidence. But her family has been so bombarded by these images that I can only hope it has given them a little bit of peace to know that her last moments were not captured in those pictures. To be honest, I seriously doubt that whoever killed Yolandi would have left a room looking that way anyway. Why go to the trouble of dismembering your victim to dispose of her remains and then leave a hotel room looking like that? It never made any sense to me as a fit. The public has not been advised of any arrests or progress in Yolandi Bortis' case, but we need to keep in mind that this does not mean nothing is happening. Look at the Raymond Papapaflu case. For almost a year, the public and even his family thought nothing was happening, and in the background, police were working the case. The SAPS are under no obligation to release information to the public, or even to the family, while the case is active. Unfortunately, Releasing information when an investigation is in a crucial or active stage is extremely risky. Until police figure out the full extent of involvement, it makes sense that they would keep some information even from the family. Emotional reactions would be expected from grieving family members. Would they really be able to keep information that's crucial to an investigation private? Maybe not. I do believe that Yolandi Bortis's case is solvable. I don't believe that the public has a role to play in solving the case at this point. We didn't do so well with the bloody hotel room, now did we? As much as we may be hungry for information, it's just not ours to have right now and we have to decide whether we would rather have a thorough investigation and a secured conviction, or a post to share on Facebook. Yes, 
it's important to keep Yolandi's memory alive. But we can still do that in the knowledge that her case is being taken care of. And if nothing comes of the investigation in due course, then we can start making a noise. Right now, I don't think it benefits anyone, least of all Yolandi. And that is your Spotlight Minisode for the week. If you enjoyed this Minisode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app you're using to listen right now. You can also follow the show on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I'll be back next Friday with a full case episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. Mm -hmm.